This podcast is supported by the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, one of America's leading research medical schools. Icon Mount Sinai is the academic arm of the eight-hospital Mount Sinai Health System in New York City. It's consistently among the top recipients of NIH funding. Researchers at Icon Mount Sinai have made breakthrough discoveries in many fields vital to advancing the health of patients, including cancer, COVID, and long COVID, cardiology, neuroscience, and artificial intelligence. The Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. We find a way. Before the show starts, I'd like to ask you to consider subscribing to News from Science. You've heard from some of our editors on here, David Grimm, Mike Price. They handle the latest scientific news with accuracy and good cheer, which, which is pretty amazing considering it can sometimes be over 20 articles a week. And you hear from our journalists. They're all over the world writing on every topic under the sun, and they come on here to share their stories. The money from subscriptions, which is about 50 cents a week, goes directly to supporting nonprofit science journalism, tracking science policy, our investigations, international news, and yes, when we find out new mummy secrets, we report on that too. Support nonprofit science journalism with your subscription at science.org news. Scroll down and click subscribe on the right side. That's science.org news. Click subscribe. Welcome to the Science Podcast for April 15, 2016. I'm Sarah Crespi. In this week's show, Nuno Faria talks about tracing the roots of Brazil's Zika epidemic. And Catherine Matisic is here with a roundup of stories from our daily news site. Support for the Science Podcast is provided by AAAS, the American Association for the Advancement of Science. Now we have Catherine Matisic, an editor for our online daily news site. She's here to talk about some recent online stories. First up, we have a story on the evolution of sign language. We're lucky to have the author of this story here today, so I won't need to do too much introducing. Catherine, this story is about studying sign language development in the lab. What's the background here? What are some of the big sign language mysteries? The big mysteries of sign language are the same mysteries of all languages. How did they get their start? And once they started, how did they become more complex? So how did we go from the idea of an apple to a word for apple to eventually complex, nuanced discussions about apples? In this study, researchers wanted to find out how language becomes conventionalized. Basically, how people come up with signs that they can all agree mean one thing or another. In spoken language, we have a lot of ways for doing this. Take the word paint, add an ER, and you get painter or a person who paints. That's a pretty cool system. It turns out that sign language uses a lot of the same strategies. The method used in this research makes me think of that old game uh, telephone. Can you walk us through it? Sure. First, researchers gave a group of volunteers a list of 24 words about food, religion, photography, music, hairstyling, and law enforcement. The words fell into four categories, people, locations, objects, and actions. So you might have one word for photographer and another word for camera. Volunteers were asked to invent gestures that would communicate these words. Researchers videotaped them and then played the video for an entirely new group of volunteers. 
the learners. This is where the telephone game starts. The learners would learn the signs and then play a game with a partner from the same group. Each one would try to guess what sign the other one was making. They had already learned most of them from the videos, so it wasn't that hard. But as they played the game, many of them made slight adjustments to the signs so they would be better understood. Then they taught these signs to a second generation of learners who played the game and taught them to a third generation, and so on. The results are actually the opposite of what you get at the end of a game of telephone. After several generations, they didn't get a garbled mess like I did back in grade school. What did they see instead? What they saw was pretty amazing. Instead of pantomiming or acting out the words like most of the volunteers did at the beginning, later generations of learners started making them in ways that were more systematic and more efficient. What's more, they added markers for the four categories, pointing to themselves if the category were person, or making an outline of a house if the category were location. They also stopped repeating gestures over and over again, meaning that the signs were getting more efficient over time. How did this result compare with what has been seen with actual languages. I mean, they were just making stuff up on the fly for the original set of gestures, right? That's true. But what's really neat is that these results are compatible with evidence coming from the world of newly emerging sign languages, new languages that have been invented from scratch over the last several decades, as previously isolated deaf people have come together in school and community settings. You have these in, I think, Nicaragua and also in Israel and a couple of other places around the world. Over time, their communication becomes much more complex generation by generation. In addition to coming up with the kind of markers we've discussed here, it turns out that they're using the new body parts to do so, starting with their hands and moving to their heads, bodies, and even faces. It's a fascinating glimpse into how languages evolve in real time. Next up, we have a story on changing hearts and minds with surveys. There's a bit of a backstory for this one. Basically, a 2014 paper published in Science claimed that it is not so difficult to change people's opinions on social issues, that a short interview with a gay canvasser could change a person's view on gay marriage for a significant amount of time. It turns out that study was fraudulent. One of the authors faked the data and the analysis, and the paper was subsequently retracted. Okay. But now here comes the twist. Catherine, do you want to do the fun part? So the researchers who uncovered the scientific scandal did so as they were trying to replicate the very same study you were just talking about. Basically, they wanted to see if they could use the same method for another study. After they realized the data were fake, they went public and started taking call after call from, no offense, pesky science journalists. <laughs> but even as they were giving out their interviews, they realized they were holding on to a very explosive secret. When they redid their own version of the study with transgender people, they found that the results held up. They said the whole experience was terrifying. Right. So they're getting all these calls from reporters being like, you're, you know, how did you figure this out? Does this mean all this kind of research is terrible? Meanwhile, they're actually doing a study and starting to see really good results. And then we published them here at Science. Mm -hmm. And let's talk a little bit about the method that they used here. Who did they survey? Who were the surveyors? That kind of thing. Yeah. So basically, they were trying to look at attitudes about transgender issues. So they sent out a team of 56 canvassers, some of them transgender, some of them not, 
to 501 houses in Miami. Each visit consisted of a 10-minute interview with surveys before and after. The new study covers a different issue, but they use the same approach that they call analogic perspective-taking. What is that? Basically, when people invite someone to discuss an experience similar to what they're trying to explain. In this case, canvassers tried to get potential voters to tell them about a time in which they felt different and were treated unfairly because of it. The idea is this kind of perspective-taking generates sympathy for the suffering of another group, like gay or transgender people. I'm not sure I would call this another twist, but the results from this new study were actually stronger than in the earlier study. They were. The canvassing technique virtually erased the prejudices of about 1 in 10 people, and the change lasted at least three months. But unlike in the previous study, it didn't matter if the canvassers were part of the discriminated against group or not. I haven't seen too many people doubting the validity of these new results, but are they going to be able to generalize this finding to other issues? While they might be applicable to other political and social issues, some researchers think the transgender topic might be a special case. It's only just recently that most of us have started discussing the issue in public, and so it's likely that many people have opinions that just aren't crystallized yet. Lastly, we have a story on a few in a million chance. This next story comes out of the Resilience Project, which is just a fascinating idea. Instead of looking for people who are ill because of a gene, they look for people who are healthy in spite of having a genetic predisposition to an illness. Apparently, for a project like this, you need to have a really, really big sample. How many genomes did they look at, Catherine? Researchers looked at nearly 600,000 genomes from generally healthy adults who had donated their DNA for research, mostly to the genetic testing company 23andMe, but also to other academic research projects. I just, I can't believe it. That's more than half a million. I know. What are the hopes for this project if they do find someone who has a mutation, but not the disease? What can they learn? They want to find healthy individuals who have genetic mutations that usually cause serious disease in those who carry them, such as those for the lung disorder cystic fibrosis. If a person who has such a mutation is well, he or she may carry a mutation in a different gene that compensates for or buffers the harmful gene's effect. That protective gene could point to a brand new therapy for the disease. At first scan over all these genomes, they actually saw a lot of people who looked like they carried disease-causing mutations, but then didn't have the symptoms. How did they winnow down that list? At first, it seemed that nearly 16,000 individuals carried these kinds of mutations. But the list got much shorter when researchers removed people with low-quality genetic data, or those who had mutations that hadn't clearly been shown to cause serious illness early in life. The final yield was just 13 people with mutations that normally result in eight severe childhood disorders. What kind of diseases were these folks supposed to have? The diseases included cystic fibrosis, an autoimmune disease, a severe skin disorder, and others that normally lead to skeletal deformities and mental retardation. All of the diseases I mentioned appear early in childhood, important because that way the donors could be relatively certain that they didn't have them and were thus healthy when they donated their DNA. All right, now it's time to start the caveat parade. This is an early proof-of-principle type study 
So there are a few issues, even with the final 13 resilience candidates, right? There are caveats aplenty. First, the researchers couldn't confirm that the mutations weren't just genotyping errors for eight of the 13 individuals. Second, the researchers couldn't reach any of the 13 people for further testing because when they donated their DNA, they did so with the understanding that they would not be contacted again. One of the researchers had a really good way of describing this. He said, it's almost as if you got to take the wrapping off of the present, but then you couldn't open the present up. Oh, no. This concept still seems like a winner to me. The next step has got to be to get the right data set that they can actually follow up. How are they going to do that? The researchers are planning a full-scale resilience project that will invite brand new volunteers who agree to be recontacted to participate through a website. And similar studies are also planned or underway, including one in the United Kingdom, the 100,000 Genomes Project, and one in the U.S., the Precision Medicine Initiative. Okay. What else is on the site this week, Catherine? We have a story on paralyzed people who are able to move their hands and fingers using brainwaves, and a story on trees that transfer carbon to other trees using an underground network of fungus. On Science Insider, our policy blog, we have a story on billionaire Yuri Milner's new star shot and a story on how NASA's Kepler satellite avoided a total meltdown. Thanks, Catherine. Thanks, Sarah. Catherine Matasek is an editor for our online daily news site. I'm Sarah Crespi. You can check out the latest news and the policy blog, Science Insider, at news.sciencemag.org. Although the Zika virus was first identified in 1947, a recent outbreak that seems to indicate a link between infection by the virus and birth defects has led to the declaration of a global emergency by the World Health Organization. In the wake of the outbreak, scientists have a big slate of projects to pursue. A few key aims are to confirm Zika's link to microcephaly and other neurological damage, create treatments for the infection, vaccine development, and to understand how the virus has circulated between continents and within South and Central America. I spoke with Nuno Feria about his group's work on this last project. So Zika virus is a single-stranded RNA virus uh, that is a member of the Flaviviridae virus family that includes dengue virus, West Nile virus, among others, and is transmitted by the Aedes mosquito species. The virus was first isolated in 1947 from a sentinel monkey in the Zika forest in Uganda and can be classified in two distinct genotypes, the African genotype, which is mostly found throughout the African continent, and the Asian genotype, which can be found in Southeast Asia, Pacific Islands, and more recently in the Americas. In May 2015, the virus was reported in Brazil, and this was the first detection of Zika virus in the Americas. We first analyzed suspected Zika virus cases in all municipalities of Brazil during 2015. In fact, Zika is well established in 22 out of the 27 states now, and what we saw is that there was a peak in incidence in mid-July 2015, and that most cases were located in Bahia Federal State. Right. Now, can you talk a little bit about the effects of the Zika virus on a person who happens to catch it? So until recently, Zika virus infection was thought to cause only mild symptoms, and those included rash, conjunctivitis, and myalgia. 
So also, Zika virus infection during pregnancy has been hypothesized to cause microcephaly and congenital abnormalities. This has been backed up by a detection of the virus in brain and microcephaly fetus and also in amniotic fluid, but also by in vitro studies showing infection of progenital neural cells. So we then used weekly counts of suspected Zika virus infection and suspected microcephaly cases from the Brazilian surveillance system. And although many cases are still not confirmed or many may represent misdiagnosis, we find that the suspected microcephaly cases in Brazilian, Brazilian municipalities correlate with Zika virus incidence at week 17 of pregnancy. So this equates to roughly five months lag between Zika virus and microcephaly cases, and this spatial and temporal correlation adds further insight to the growing amount of evidence linking Zika virus infection and microcephaly. Your study aimed to track Zika back to when it first entered the country, and then looking at its spread, and, and you used viral genomes. What kind of sample did you work from? To find out when and from where the virus was introduced in the Americas, we used samples from seven different patients with no history of traveling abroad. Full genomes were then recovered for each sample, and this included data from a fatal adults and one complete genome from a newborn with microcephaly. So we then compiled these data with all available complete coding sequences and performed maximum likelihood reconstructions and Bayesian molecular clock analysis. From our reconstructions, we observed that all American sequences form a strongly supported monophyletic clade within the Asian genotype, which indicates one single introduction of the virus in the Americas. And we also found that all Brazilian sequences were phylogenetically interspersed and more diverse than sequences from other countries. So the fact that Zika virus was first reported in Brazil and that Zika sequences are phylogenetically more diverse than sequences from other countries suggested that a common ancestor of Zika virus in the Americas existed in Brazil. Okay. And looking at these genomes, what did you learn about when Zika arrived and where it came from? Our genetic analysis showed that the virus was introduced in the Americas most likely between May and December 2013. So that is at least one year before its first detection in Brazil. So there's been two previously published hypotheses that included the introduction due to viremic-infected travelers, either by attending the World Cup in June-July 2014, or by attending a canoeing event in Rio de Janeiro a couple of months later. Our estimates, however, clearly predate these previously described events in the literature and are more in line with an introduction during the Confederations Cup tournament in June 2013. However, we also believe that ad hoc hypotheses focused on specific events are hard to test and we think that large-scale patterns in human mobility, such as flight data, provide more useful information and testable hypotheses about the introduction and emergence of new viruses. So taking this into account, we compiled air passenger numbers from countries with known Zika virus cases between 2012 and 2015, and we were surprised to see a 50% rise in the number of travels by airplane to Brazil from these countries. So such rise in the number of flights likely increased the relative risk of virus importation into Brazil. But the right ecological conditions, for example, vector abundance, human-to-mosquito ratio, temperature and precipitation still needed to be met for its establishment in the region. Now, one of the methods that you used here was looking at how, how this virus mutated over time and using that kind of as a clock. Of the mutations that you saw, the differences between these Zika samples, do they have anything 
different about them, about the function of the virus? You know, are they related to the microcephaly? Are they related to, you know, some changes in its biology? So indeed, we saw several unique mutations along the entire Zika virus genomes, but that's expected given the high rate of evolutionary change of flaviviruses. So however, we do not know yet the precise effects that these mutations have in terms of pathogenicity. Some of these mutations will be transient, while others will eventually become fixed in the virus population. But to try to understand whether any of these mutations were associated with microcephaly, we compared our microcephaly genome with two previously published genomes of microcephaly cases in Brazil, and we found no identical changes among these. Thus, we hypothesized that if any change is related with microcephaly, then this would likely be found among amino acid changes that occurred along these internal branches ancestral to the French Polynesia and American lineages. These two lineages have been in fact associated with reports of microcephaly, uh, Guillain-Barré syndrome and congenital abnormalities. Using phylogenetic character mapping, we identified 11 amino acid changes along these branches, which we then mapped onto homologous protein structures. None of these changes was predicted to be associated with higher hydrophilicity. Thus, it is possible that other factors could explain disease severity, such as, for example, previous exposure to dengue virus, co-infection with dengue and chikungunya, and also differences in human genetic predisposition to disease. What else can we learn from the patterns that you found in these genomes? Our phylogenetic reconstructions clearly reveal virus lineage movement across countries and even across locations within Brazil. So we believe that these early findings open the doors to track and potentially to predict Zika virus spread across different scales. However, we do need more genetic and epidemiological data to pursue these goals. Why do you think it's important that we know how the virus got to Brazil, how it spread? Why is that an important thing to understand? In general, the time lag between dating estimates and the dates of the first reported cases may give us an indication on how well the current surveillance systems are able to track the early transmission and spread of a new virus. So the fact that Zika virus may have been spreading in Brazil one year before its detection could be simply explained by the fact that Zika early cases were misclassified as dengue or chikungunya cases. So these two arboviruses co-circulate, are well-established in the country, and their clinical symptoms are similar to Zika infection. So this further highlights that molecular diagnostic techniques will provide a better appreciation of the real burden of infection caused by these different arboviruses. Thanks so much for talking with me. Thank you very much for your attention, and we hope that our work here contributes to a better understanding of the ignition and the spread of infectious diseases in our highly connected world. Nuno Faria is a research lecturer in the Department of Zoology at the University of Oxford. You can read his article and more on Zika at sciencemag.org topics. And that concludes this edition of the Science Podcast. If you have any comments or suggestions for the show, write us at sciencepodcast at aaas.org or tweet to us at Science Magazine. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and many other places, or listen to us on the Science site. The show is a production of Science Magazine. Jeffrey Cook composed the music. I'm Sarah Crespi. On behalf of Science Magazine and its publisher, AAAS, thanks for joining us. You listen to us to hear about new discoveries in science. But did you know we're a part of the American Association for the Advancement of Science? AAAS is a nonprofit publisher and a science society. 
When you join AAAS, you help support our mission to advance science for the benefit of all. Become a AAAS member at the silver level or above to receive a year's subscription to science and an exclusive gift. Join today by visiting AAAS.org slash join. That's A-A-A-S dot O-R-G slash join. This week's episode is brought to you in part by Science Careers. Looking for some career advice? Wondering how to get ahead or how to strike a better work-life balance? Visit our site to read how others are doing it. Use our individual development plan tool, access topic-specific article collections, or search for an exciting new job. Science Careers, produced by Science and AAAS, is a free website full of resources to help get the most out of your career. Visit sciencecareers.org today to get started.